Okay, Lauren. So let's say that there's a world where you get to add princesses from other universes to the Princess Alliance. Who do you draft for your fantasy princess alliance? Oh, General Leia, for sure. Um, oh, Zelda, Princess of Hyrule, for sure. And, mm, can I have, I mean, she's a queen, but can I have Elsa? Because double ice powers. She's technically a Disney princess, right? So yeah. I, I think the branding lets you slide in there. She's definitely the only Disney princess I'd want to recruit. I don't need, I don't need like Ariel on the squad. I, I think Princess Zelda is a fantastic answer, especially because she can transform into Sheik. And then I think my other answer is going to be Princess Kenny. Because Princess Kenny can't die. Oh. Well, Princess Kenny also can die over and over from a certain point of view. Oh, this is a tough nut to crack. Welcome back to She-Ra Progressive of Power. I am Eric. And my name is Lauren. That's right. We are here today to talk about the fourth episode of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, Flowers for She-Ra. And we have a very special guest from Lauren's non-She-Ra life. Isn't that right? What non-She-Ra life do I even have, Eric? That's not a thing that I have. I don't know. If I was on Twitter, I could I could look and, and see what else you tweet about. But I've, it seems like a lot of She-Ra from all the notices I get. Yeah. So instead of introducing the guest right away, I'm going to talk about Twitter because we at this point probably get, on average, one tweet from a fan per day at this point. And I'm just so thrilled to hear from all of you Netflix reboot fans and I, I think it's important to note because Eric's not on Twitter at all. And <laughs> someone yesterday uh, tried to contact him on Twitter and instead contacted our friend Sean from Improvised Star Trek. Who was on the episode about uh, Black Snow. It, so It was not enough to bring Eric back to Twitter, though. No. But I've never been mistaken for Sean Kelly before. No. Never, ever. I would be honored. I actually think Lauren and Sean do a podcast behind my back, and this is an elaborate cover-up. Shh, don't talk about it. <laughs> anyway, our guest today is Michael Shirello. He is the president of the associate board over at the Illinois Science Council. And the Illinois Science Council is another place where I volunteer and feel very passionate about, and we'll actually be working with them this weekend. So hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to talk about the Illinois Science Council and She-Ra especially. We're also neighbors now. Really? Now that I've moved to Bridgeport. Now, do you want to give the listeners your exact address? No. And your schedule and your the things you most fear? <laughs> well. We have fans. They're dying to know. Uh, I fear spiders. Uh, I fear failure. I do not, however, fear death. Death is pretty chill. Just like Thanos. <laughs> Actually, the fans message me on Facebook all the time. They're like, yo, what is Lauren most afraid of? And what's her address so we can send it to her? <laughs> I keep giving it to them, but I don't know your new address, so I just give them the one in... Uh... It is why I moved. It's exclusively <laughs> anyway, why I moved. We're being idiots. None of that's true. Please uh, don't ask for Lauren's address. Please don't send me spiders. It's funny that that's coming up, though, because Michael is a big fan of spiders and bugs and owns a lot of them. 
I do own many bugs. Could you tell us about your like top three? <laughs> Ooh, so there's Becky and no. Um, <laughs> I would say my my favorite right now is uh, I have a giant water beetle, um, and it's super alien and fantastic to look at and uh, to feed. Um, it's exciting to watch it sort of hunt and catch things. That's but so but cool. then you also enjoy eating bugs. So ethically, how do you resolve that one? <laughs> uh, it's probably similar to the same relationship I have with uh, birds. I, I love birds. I've had several birds, um, <laughs> but I eat chicken most nights of the week. Oh, fair. Uh, yeah, like you pet a pig at a petting zoo, right? But you'll get some ribs. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I did in fact own a bird for a while, so I guess I guess this trap I set was was poor conceived. <laughs> <laughs> Pork conceived. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> Wilbur. That's <laughs> some pig. That's and we should point out Michael brought us. Um, Bug food. So we have... Not food for bugs. No, food made of bugs. Yes. So we have brown cricket rice from Bug Eater Foods. Uh, it is not for resale, but it doesn't say not for gifting to podcast hosts. So <laughs> I think we're safe. We have um, paleo birthday cake from Gemini's Cricket Protein uh, Cookies. That's really awesome. So it's a protein cookie birthday cake flavored made out of crickets? Yes, uh, that's probably Flower. my favorite. I love birthday cake cookies, uh, birthday cake cakes, birthday cake oh anything really. So, and then we have a, a same brand of chocolate chip cookies, which is wild. I didn't know that they made food out of crickets. They make so many things out of crickets. Actually, uh, one of the privileges is what I do is uh, I get to work with a lot of fantastic companies. These are just a few. Um, there's some great organizations that are doing work and trying to bring uh, edible insects and sustainable agriculture. Um, on a micro scale uh, to us through these great and really innovative products. Um, some of the more interesting ones are there's a boljene sauce that's made out of mealworms. Um, there's a spicy arabiata I have that's done with crickets. Uh, I've used black ants on uh, lemon meringue and key lime pies, and it gives it just this tart, uh, really citrusy, like kind of explosive flavor. Um, and I've, I've heard the pitch before, but why, for our new <laughs> listeners, is this considered a sustainable thing to eat? Well, I think right now there's a lot going on in the impact we're having. You know, we're at, uh, I think, 7 billion people in the world. And I think by 2050, they're projecting we're going to be around 10 billion people. And we already use a third of the arable land uh, for agriculture. So arguably, one of the biggest ways that we can make a difference nowadays is by being conscious of the decisions we make when we're eating. Um, food's super important, and it's something that we are increasingly becoming aware of and more passionate about. You know, we talk about organic, hormone-free, all these things are, are common dinner table subjects, no pun intended. Um, so the most radical effect we can really have on a daily basis is by changing what we eat and the products that we buy. So uh, I guess the quick way to introduce it is uh, people usually come to this really obscure area of food um, in one of two ways, uh, either from the sustainability side and they just think that this is really cool. There's a lot of great numbers behind it, a lot of really um, exciting research and work being done in this field by um, laboratories, by universities, by um, agricultural divisions of huge companies uh, and by small-scale people, indigenous people. So it really spans a lot of fields. Uh, and then there's the weirder people like me who just uh, never stop being that eight-year-old kid who loves bugs. <laughs> nice. um, and uh, I'd say about six or seven years ago, I got um, really involved in the literature and reading about 
how edible insects were becoming a thing and it was becoming more important. And those arguments I found really um, moving, but I mean, I was going to love bugs regardless. So this is a way I get to talk about it with people like you oh, now. This, this is fascinating. I want to ask so many questions, <laughs> but we're trying to keep our episodes tighter than they were last season. Uh, I guess the last question I'd put to you about this is, like, let's say you've committed some horrible crime, maybe uh, unjustly convicted, like there's going to be a season of Serial about you. But Eric, you have what to, the heck? I, I'm just setting the stage. <laughs> okay. Uh, and you have to pick a last meal. See, that's where I'm going with oh. this. Mm. Um, I just wanted to make it my cereal joke. Um, what What is your, I guess the normal person would ask it like this, what's your favorite meal? Like uh, anything in the world that you, if you could pick, what would you eat? That's a fascinating question. I would say uh, my last step before going into the unknown would be a last step into the unknown. So one of the things that I've always really wanted to eat still and haven't yet um, would be a uh, tarantula roasted in like banana leaves. Oh my gosh! Uh, and I've never gotten to, so I would want to go out. Whether Imagine it's good or bad, knowing the people that. at the jail, yeah, this is what you have to go get. Like we have to it's bring payback. in someone from the prison system to see if they would even make that. That's incredible. They'd be like, what is your second choice? <laughs> yeah. uh, did you say steak? We've got one of those <laughs> ready for you. Spider. He is our hero. Spider. Get rid of. Spider. Step on spider. Spider. We love you. So, Michael, what we have to ask this question: uh, How do you balance work and family? No, um, <laughs> not well. What, <laughs> what is your experience with Shira? Uh, I am a child of the '80s. Uh, I was born in '83, so uh, He-Man was something I very strongly remember. Shira was something I vaguely remember. I'm sure I watched some of it, um, but I couldn't tell you much other than that she was kind of a girl version of He-Man. From what I recalled. Accurate. Uh, and then just this week, Lauren was talking about this fantastic podcast. Um, so I wanted to listen to it, and I thought I'd dive into the new Netflix series, and I ended up binging it, and I think it was just all Saturday. Yeah, oh, I was awesome. at I was at his place with uh, his partner as well, and we were just sort of vaguely like, oh, your podcast sounds interesting. And I was like, they're never going to listen to that. And then the next time I talked to them, they were like, we've watched all of Shira. We watched it all in a day. I was pretty proud. Wow. That's great. So you liked it. I really liked it. Um, it, w it was fantastic. And uh, then just before this episode, I watched the 80s version. Uh, so that was wonderful as well, um, and I'm super excited to talk about them both. Oh my gosh! So yeah, we are we have a green guest on because we're talking about a very green episode. Uh, do you want to recap or shall I? I'll give it a go this time. Yeah, it, uh, recapping gives me such anxiety. So flowers for Shira starts with uh, Adora and the best friend squad sort of adapting to her new life uh, at Bright Moon. And she is not used to comfort in the most literal sense. <laughs> and she's not used to being alone. And so we see her getting used to the environment and not doing a very good job. Uh, she runs into Queen Angela in the hallway. And we get a little bit of background lore about King Micah. And sort of Angela's mental state, which we might talk about today or maybe another time, but she's my favorite character. Uh, and then kind of the next day, the remnants of the broken princess alliance come together 
to have just sort of a status meeting. And we meet uh, Natasa and Spinnerella, who are the only two princesses who sort of stuck around. And this is the first time I've seen Bo come across as a little bit rude because those are two great characters and the running gag is Bo doesn't know what they do or what they're for. And it was mean. Uh, So we find out that Plumeria, where Perfuma is, is being uh, sieged or held to siege. I don't even know what the verb form of that. But the Horde is preventing them from getting resources. And She-Ra and Glimmer, they're ready to run in there and fight. Glimmer is really eager to prove herself. She-Ra is kind of itching to test her new powers and prove herself to the Rebellion. And Angela's being very conservative. And she says only bring them resources. We're basically doing a supply run. That's it. Keep everyone safe. Keep everyone alive. Of course, though, when we get to Plumeria, the situation is way worse than anyone expected. The whole kingdom and all of its plant life, and thus it's uh, the stone from which the princess gets all her powers. It's It's all just crumbling. The people of Plumeria are very uh, pacifistic, sort of one with the earth, a little bit hippie stereotype, maybe a lot hippie stereotype. And they kind of think the universe is just going to sort it all out for them. But Adora knows the horde and she knows this is not a sort of karmic universe problem. There's an actual machine poisoning the land and it's, it's not going to just stop. It's not going to go away. She struggles with her powers. Uh, They ask her to heal the land. She doesn't know how, but she does what she is able to do, which is infiltrate the Horde base and destroy the machine using her Adora knowledge instead of pure She-Ra powers. Um, There's some stuff in the middle uh, that we can talk about. She-Ra has a sort of long and storied legacy of of legends that sound an awful lot like the 80s cartoon that everyone is expecting her to be and she can't quite live up to yet and there's a lot of angst there but in the end uh, she kind of gets her first win as She-Ra and her first win bringing someone back to the Princess Alliance Uh, because in the end uh, Perfuma and all of her people decide they have to take a more active role and save themselves and not only the super-powered people, but the regular people, too, decide that they are of the rebellion. So this episode, to me, uh, this is one of my favorites of the series, and it almost, to me, is the first post-pilot episode because it fills the exact same role as Duel at Devlin, which uh, you may remember is the first post-Secret of the Sword episode in the original She-Ra, where She-Ra has to convince a village to stand up for themselves against the Horde, except... In that version, the village is cowards, and in this version, the village is hippies. Um, they're, they're pacifists. And I, I really like this episode, and I think this is probably the meatiest political episode that we have probably in the whole season. We should mention Michael did go and watch Flowers for Hordak, which is a classic she episode that we have not covered. But I think Noelle Stevenson has said it's her favorite episode of the show. That is true. So I'm glad that uh, Michael has seen it. So he has something on us. I watched it like a decade ago. <laughs> Lauren has never seen it. So we'll be talking about that episode here, too. But I'm dying to know, Michael, what did you think of this episode? I, I loved this episode. I thought there were so many messages, and I think... A lot of those messages really come out, the nuances, uh, when you do compare it with the 80s episode, um, because they are complete inversions of each other. I mean, just starting with the title, um, Flowers for Hordak versus um, 
flowers for Shira. So there's a lot that goes on, um, both with the relationships that people have with the environment and the role uh, of agency. Uh, And I think that's a really important theme that we see come out is what is our responsibility, you know, uh, in the eighties, there's, uh, in the eighties version, there's this pacificity that she gets, um, from the light thing, light hope, light hope. Yes. So light hope tells her, don't go and try and, um, save Plumeria. She's fine, you know, concentrate on the forest. And she does. And Plumeria, uh, nature, the environment sort of takes care of itself and, defeats Hordak with, you know, its own power of hope and love and beauty and prettiness that he can't stand. Uh, And in this, it's the exact opposite thing going on, where um, there's this really intense battle uh, that you can't just inevitably be passive and hope that things will work out, that it takes an active role. Um, And I think that reflects the way that we've changed as people uh, from the 80s to now in our relationship with the environment. That's really great. Yeah, to Phil Lauren and maybe some of our younger listeners in. So Flowers for Hordak is a primarily comedic episode where the joke is the Horde captures Perfuma and they are going to try to ransom her to the rebels. But it turns out they're driven crazy by her because she's this kind of like Julia Child sounding uh, love child. And she just dances around the fright zone in her little smock and puts flowers everywhere and gives Hordak a flower crown. And the dramatic twist of the episode is that Hordak ends up begging the rebels to take her back. So Light Hope is correct to tell the rebels, don't worry about her. Worry about the woods and your friend will be fine. And you're right, that's not really, it is inverted in this version, which I hadn't thought about at all. That's really cool. It's fascinating because there is that message in it that they make fun of hippies. um, And I think my favorite line was, ring the war chimes or the chimes of war. (laughs) The party kill. That was just fantastic. But uh, there really is a call to arms right now, um, whether you want to talk about uh, uh, climate change, anything that's going on, um, our relationship to food, diets, GMOs, all these things are really big issues, uh, and they're super prevalent in a way that they weren't before because we are being called and tasked with no longer being able to ignore these issues, but to take an active role in fighting our own forces and our own worst nature. I thought it was uh, very telling that while all of this destruction is literally at their doorstep, they're having parties and they're relying on stories of the Shira and well, as long as our, what are they called? The, not the world tree, but the... Uh, the as heart lo- blossom. The, as long as the heart blossom is okay, we don't have to worry about anything. And then all of a sudden, like, the one thing that they're depending on goes away, and it's like, oh, now now we are worried. That feels like a very modern parable to me. Yeah, even less politically intense is this sort of um, takedown of good vibes only culture, which I really appreciated. Definitely. <laughs> super Instagrammy, like, let's just all have a moment. Let's just all stay positive. It's not good enough. And I loved this show saying, maybe we should graduate out of that phase, society. Now is not the time. Yeah, this is probably my favorite exchange is uh, when Perfuma says, we have to believe the universe will repay the horde for their evil deeds eventually. And Glimmer says, the universe won't protect you, as if to say, like, you got to have agency. Exactly what Michael was saying. You have to take agency in your own destiny. I've been making that argument a lot uh, in terms of modern politics. I think it's very easy for privileged people to say, 
eventually Donald Trump won't be president anymore and eventually the great pendulum of history will swing back in the other direction. But you're only allowed to say that when the travesties happening around you don't directly affect your life, you know? We're not going to get back the kids who are dying at the border. We're not going to get back the even just the forgiveness of the people who aren't allowed to love each other or be with their families. Uh, it's really easy if, as, as a, you know, generally privileged white person with a nice job and a salary in a diverse urban area to be like, this will pass eventually, but it's not going to pass for a lot of people. When it, if, if your life is ruined today, it doesn't matter if my life isn't ruined four years from now. And so I really appreciate that this was an episode about Fix it now, not later. Wait, there might be another way. I know the Horde. I think they're using one of their machines to poison your land. If we want to save your home, we have to stop them. You're not the Shira from the stories. You were supposed to save us. It will be all right, I promise. We'll rebuild. We have to believe the universe will repay the Horde for their evil deeds eventually. The universe won't protect you? You want Shira to fix everything, but you won't even try to save yourselves? At least Adora's trying. Um, but I love, and Lauren mentioned this in a recap, that the this new iteration of the show also ties in um, a very introspective plot about what is Adora's role in all this, what is the Rebellion's role. There is kind of an implication at the in the opening of this episode, which I love, that the Rebellion's a little bougie, at least life in Bright Moon. Like, Adora's bed is far too ornate, and she doesn't even understand how to sleep on, uh, sleep on it. I thought that was a really cool touch. Like, they also have some work to do, you know? Yeah, we see that in this episode, and we see it throughout the series. I'm not going to get into spoilers, but the princesses, on several occasions, being so insular, make potential allies feel sometimes excluded or misunderstood. And they're not going to have the peace that the Plumerians say they desire until that changes. You can't have peace if you don't accept everyone. You're also totally right to call out how meta the uh, like the stories of the She-Ra are to the point where there's even a line where one of the Plumerians says, you're not the She-Ra from the stories, which is just so like wink because they talk about Beast Island. Yeah. Like, she tamed the beast of Beast Island. She fought off an army on top of a unicorn. Obviously, she doesn't have a unicorn yet in this version. Uh, although Catra's fan art implies that she does, so that's a, that's a weird thing. But anyway, <laughs> maybe Catra vision-boarded She-Ra's future. Well, uh, before we got to the studio today, Michael made a very interesting point about the 80s She-Ra seems to be what the 2018 Plumerians are looking for and hoping will show up, and they don't get 80s Shira, They get this other one, which raises a, a huge fan theory question of, is this just nostalgia? Is this just a shout-out to the previous show? Or are they trying to seed that 80s She-Ra is, like, canonically also true at some point in some universal timeline, which to me would be crazy. It's not what I want, but they keep saying things that make me wonder. 
Is there a fan theory about that? I, I feel like it's more we're supposed to take that Mara as She-Ra or any past She-Ra behaved very much like um, Adora in the 1980s show, whereas this is a new kind of introspective She-Ra. But I, you know, I know just as much as you, so I could be totally wrong about that. But yeah, certainly that's that's a brilliant observation, Michael, that the villagers want Filmation She-Ra and they get uh, Noel Stevenson She-Ra and it ends up working in their favor. Hordak says he'll release Perfuma if someone will come take her away. Hmm. It doesn't make sense. Why would Hordak just let Perfuma go? I mean, it must be a trap. Perhaps. But Glimmer's getting weaker. She can't last much longer. With Perfuma's help, the trees could hold up against the darkness a long time. I'm going. But it may be a trap. Besides, Lighthope said you should do nothing. Giving Perfuma a ride home isn't doing much. And besides, for Glimmer's sake, we have to do something. Let me go with you, Shira. No, Bo. As you say, it may be a trap. I'd better go alone. To the fright zone, Swift Wind. Fly! I did want to touch on what I missed in the recap, which is we do get a moment in the fright zone several moments in the Fright Zone with Catra and Shadow Weaver. Uh, it's the same old song, you know, Catra, you failed to bring back Adora, and Catra being like, you suck, Mom. But <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot in that about the relationship between Shadow Weaver and Catra and Catra and Adora, and I wanted to make sure we gave it its, its due. Oh, there is a lot. Um, I love when something happens to Shadow Weaver when she's going all shadowy on Catra, and she her powers flick, uh, like flicker. And Catra reaches out in like a moment of tenderness, and Shadow Weaver bats her away, uh, which is really interesting. I also am puzzled by when Shadow Weaver returns to her sanctum and she's looking at her, uh, I forget what they call it, but her ruby, basically. She says, you will not refuse me. Who is she talking to? Are we supposed to take this metaphorically? Uh, that she's talking to Adora or Catra, or is there somehow some presence in this ruby that she is that is actively resisting her power? Strong feelings about this one. <laughs> that ruby belongs to Scorpia. That is, in my opinion, Princess Scorpia's ruby, uh, and I, I don't. I think that's actually canon. I think that was captured. Yes. When they captured Scorpia, the garnet. Village. I'm sorry. They called the black garnet, right? And, yeah, and so. Shadow Weaver's not supposed to be using it at all. She's like wrongly taking another princess's power and siphoning it into herself. And the ruby probably, or the garnet probably knows. It's like, you're the wrong person. And so when she says, don't resist me, she's like, I'm not this princess, but I don't care. Yeah, that it, it's fascinating. There's so many, especially because of the nature of this show being very serialized there's so many little scenes that in filmation you just be like well they didn't think of anything so they wrote something that could be a mystery or it's just ah, give up everything means something in this show right it's like lauren said last week if they don't explain something it makes you more anxious because you know there's an explanation looming around the corner yeah everything's w made with intention <gasps> you will not refuse me Shadow Weaver. Lord Hordak. You have disobeyed my orders. So on our last episode, uh, I was starting to feel some guilt, and I said it out loud. 
about the fact that when Eric and I are really riled up, we can really enter some just conservative bashing territory. And I was trying so hard last episode to say, you know, I I can buy into some conservative values if they're consistently applied. And I was really trying to justify my own point of view and my own behavior. And so having Michael on is awesome because we were having this talk in the car about whether or not the environment is a political issue or should be. But most importantly, that environmental preservation and the protection of our planet used to be a conservative priority. Michael, could you recap some of that talk? Yeah, I think it's one of the more interesting political turns that we've had recently is the erosion of the value of conservation. Um, There's a real fascinating dichotomy. I mean, still actually some of the biggest uh, organizations that support um, our natural resources, national parks, things like that, are hunters who are um, probably the biggest stewards of the environmental movement uh, even today arguably. Um, and But they were also, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, several other, uh, other prominent political figures were the original champions of our national parks and monuments. And now we see those same things slowly being kind of destroyed and eroded by um, the same organization that put them there in the first place and that they're, whose base is still actively the ones protecting it and most dependent on it as an identity and a lifestyle. Um, so there's this really cool dichotomy going on in politics right now um, that really falls along gun rights, along conservation, along environmentalism, sustainability, and the way we are positioned and position ourselves to each other and the world. Sure. And I think a point you're sort of dancing around is that both sides of the aisle, or at least the regular non powerful and rich people on both sides of the aisle, just the regular people on both sides of the aisle, may in fact want the same thing, but just for different reasons. And in an argument like, why do you want to save the planet? Why do you want to preserve the planet for future generations? Maybe the reasons you got there stopped mattering so much if the goal was still a good one. That's what politics, I guess, is supposed to be or used to be, is finding that common ground. Um, and the environment and really science in general shouldn't be political. Now, how we use those things and the ways we use them, those absolutely are, um, because everything is political, but just investing in those and, and believing that they are valuable inherently knowledge, um, the world around us, biodiversity, uh, those shouldn't be up for debate. Our people have lived here in tranquility for thousands of years. We're known for our beautiful flowers, our majestic trees, and this is the heart blossom, the center of our kingdom, and the source of all my magical powers. Well, before we wrap, um, Michael, is there anything else you want to say either about Shira or about um, your work? I, I think, like, where can people Michael follow took a you? A lot of notes. Um, well, about my work and tying it into what we're talking about and what really stood out to me is the empowerment of the people. You know, um, Plumeria, as Lauren mentioned, has the wall of vines that crash down. Uh, But she's not the one that goes in and just, like, swamp things out, so to speak. 
uh, it's really all the people going in and fighting um, all the troops because Adora was outnumbered. It was the three of them. And it's like, why isn't she going to turn into She-Ra? What's going on? Uh, but she doesn't. And she is the one who gets saved, um, which is, again, sort of the limit of Adora's power. She was able to get in, and that's that really interesting balance we touched on before. But uh, the people standing up uh, and the people taking that responsibility, there's a great line that uh, one of the villagers says, I think he says we're doing this for Shira. Instead of waiting for Shira to save them, then they're, you know, giving her that symbolism, but being the ones who take action. Uh, and so, again, one of the biggest things that we can do is really investigate the relationship we have with food um, and make better choices, uh, not just for our health, but for the environment, because we do depend on each other and we do depend on the whispering woods to keep us all safe on this little blue marble we have spinning around in the blank, empty, nothing of this universe. One thing the Illinois Science Council does that I love so much is just showing people that science is important and is present around them at all times. I did not get to go to this event because I had another commitment, but you guys just did uh, like a nature walk through Chicago in which different trees that are just in neighborhoods and in our city sort of got pointed out and acknowledged and discussed. And it's the reminder that we're not isolated from the environment or its impacts. It's it's right here. Just take a second and look at it. And there's a lot of that in this episode for sure. So I guess I'd like to end by um, let's add a moral because the new Shira doesn't have the little morals. What one thing can folks listening do to um, make a difference? That's a big question. I wish I could say that there's one specific superfood or one single thing, but probably the biggest impact that any person can have is to change their relationship with meat, which isn't to give it up, but to try to make better choices, find better sources of protein. Um, If we all just had one day a week, one meatless Monday, uh, that would be a huge, huge impact on water conservation, on land use, on forest use, on on species saved. Um, It would be a blow to monocultures, big capitalism. Uh, If you can do one thing, look at your relationship with me, look at your relationship with protein, and just try to make small changes. My favorite quote, maybe in the entire series, is in this episode, and it's near the end, and it is Glimmer when she says, do you have any idea how annoying you would be if you were perfect? And I think uh, that that's a lesson uh, that actually kind of relates to what Michael's saying is none of us can change everything and none of us are going to get it right 100% of the time. None of us are going to save the world alone or even move in the right direction every time we want to, but that's what makes humanity and human beings awesome, is that we're imperfect and together we can do better. And you would be super annoying if you were perfect. What a pretentious jerk anyone, the perfect person would be. But we are stronger together. Hey. Thanks for listening to she Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. <laughs>